everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we have our third award season release roundup. We'll be talking about quite an eclectic mix of movies today. Empire of Light, The Whale, and Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And then we have a fun little movie recommendation at the end that won't get any awards traction, probably, but uh, we both saw it and liked it, and that was Spoiler Alert. You never know. You sent me a fun little text after. I was like, well, I really have no idea what's happening there, so (laughs) why not? (laughs) Yeah, truly. So the text I sent you said something along the lines of, what if Jim Parsons was nominated for actor in a drama at the Golden Globes? You know, it, it seems more in step with how the Golden Globes used to work, where we would get these off-the-wall surprise nominations. I'm so curious what this group is going to do. At the end of the episode, we'll have reactions to the Golden Globe nominations, but as of recording, they still haven't come out. So you'll hear at the end of the episode, all of those, the ceremony is back on NBC. Still, I don't know how I feel about that, but I think getting the glitz and glam of that will be fun again, but also Jared Carmichael is the host for that event. He's the comedian who won at the Emmys. So it'll be interesting how these turn out. And I think I'm just excited to see how different the nominations are. Like if they're more sort of what we're thinking and they don't have any crazy curveballs in there like they usually did because now the organization is a lot bigger and under a microscope, frankly. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. to see how they respond to that. But let's get into these movies First, we have Empire of Light, description here, a drama about the power of human connection during turbulent times set in an English coastal town in the early 1980s. This was directed by Sam Mendes, his follow-up to 1917, which really was a hit during award season 2019. Mm -hmm. That was the parasite year. The cast here, we have Olivia Coleman, Colin Firth, Toby Jones, Michael Ward, It's sort of funny because when this teaser dropped, I think everyone thought, oh, this is going to be big. It's a movie about the movies starring Olivia Coleman. The Academy loves Sam Mendes and his movies, but it's sort of hit with a thud. It premiered at Telluride to, I would say, like negative to mixed reviews, and it dropped in theaters this weekend, and not a lot of people went to see it. It hasn't really picked up any critic support yet. That's not to say it's dead. Anything could happen. But it sort of had a different reception, I think, to what we were anticipating when that first trailer dropped. And it really showcased, I think, the beautiful cinematography done by Roger Deakins, the score by Reznor and Ross, Olivia Coleman really going for it. So, yeah, I'm I'm surprised It's, it's come out to almost no fanfare. It really has gotten quite a silent release, and it was surprising because when it came out, we did get a teaser trailer that looked so beautiful. It -hmm. was showcasing Roger Deakins' work in what we thought would be a cinematographic masterpiece. I remember on those episodes, at the time, we talked about the trailer and how beautiful it looked. So it was kind of surprising that having a wide release it was very quiet i haven't heard much i mean yes it came out at festivals but since then it really has fizzled and 
I mean, watching this movie, I realized why it was one of the blandest movies I've seen all year. It felt like Mendez had things to say, but wasn't sure how to say them and to express everything that was happening at that time in Britain. I think there was potential in what some of these characters share in their relationships, namely between Hillary and Stephen. That's Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward's characters really has a lot to say, but it doesn't go super in depth and it does leave you on an emotional note. But again, trying to tell us about the politics of the time and how problems with race were developing in the country and the world, I think it could have gone further. And it is a beautifully shot movie, but in the end, I don't think it was something that like overwhelmed me with its beauty. It's so tough because it's one of those movies where I felt the direction from Mendez was so disconnected from the screenplay. And we'll talk about another movie very soon where that I thought had the same problem. But what's weird here is that Mendez also wrote the screenplay. And the screenplay for me was the messiest part. I do think he's doing, he and Deacons both are doing interesting things with the camera at times. But it does, I think, as a story, feel really flat. And I wanted it to go, like you said, to go further. And I couldn't tell if he was afraid to go further or if he didn't know what he was trying to say. Because this movie, it's not what you see from the poster or even the teaser that it feels like this movie that's all about the magic of the movies in this place. I mean, the title itself, Empire of Light, makes it sound like the cinema is this like grand escape. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I was expecting, I think, a little bit more around that. But yeah, I I do think there's some beautiful things that are happening on a technical level. I love the production design, the look of the theater, the colors that are used, both with the interiors of that space and in the exteriors where we're in this seaside town in Kent. I really love that. It was it was a very aesthetically pleasing film, which I mean, of course it is, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though Olivia Coleman, I think, gives a really strong performance, the script failed her as well. I wanted more for that character, Hillary, mm-hmm. because she was compelling and perplexing and had plenty of contradictions and I love characters like that but the character Stephen Michael Ward and you bring up like the racial tensions that Mendes seemed to want to explore but didn't felt more like he just existed almost like a plot device for Mendes he didn't feel like a real realized character and Michael Ward was great too so I wanted more for him than to just represent something Yeah, I think the grandness that I expected from this movie, it comes so late when we're watching the lights come up and we're watching Norman, Toby Jones's character, maybe my favorite along with Steven. Yeah. But when he is showing Steven the projection room and how everything works, these huge projectors and switching the cameras and reels in the theater while the movie is playing... All of that was fantastic, and I wanted more of that. I think for the title, like you said, that's what I expected. When we see in the teaser trailer the beautiful the red of the theater and the curtains, yes, the curtain rising and 
the movie playing and everyone being in there it's that part was so nostalgic for a pastime of going to the movies and enjoying that experience and there was very very little of that and as to Olivia's performance I agree with everything you've said it kind of does her dirty and her character dirty by boiling her down to this schizophrenic or somebody with mental health issues whereas I think Olivia is smarter than that but again I think that's saying something for the time and her in the doctor's office all of those scenes and I think just all of these components didn't fit together as well as I hoped or maybe as Mendez had expected them to. Yeah, and I do prefer the film once it gets going and you can sort of adjust to its very slow. But see, I love slow movies. This is just... It's not slow. I dare call it stodgy, maybe, <laughs> if it, using a British term. <laughs> it's got a soggy bottom. <laughs> That's perfect. But I do think it is worth watching. The supporting performances are really strong. Like you mentioned, Toby Jones. We've talked about Michael Ward. Also, Colin Firth. I hated him in this, but he was really good at playing this awful, awful person who treats everyone around him terribly. I thought he did a great job there as well. So I just wish that all of these actors were a bit more supported by the script. I do want to talk about Deacons a little bit. We did an entire episode on Deacons earlier this year (laughs) and our favorite films of his, what he should have won for having two Oscars at this point. I think what really stood out for me was how he captured the light in the cinema. So how that room itself looked, how those lights around the curtain just made you feel that warm magical space and he's so good at shadows too and I loved certain shots of his where we would see characters particularly Hillary in shadows he framed a lot of the characters in doorways or in windows I thought that was really brilliant so it's it's very different from these large-scale films he does like Blade Runner 2049 or 1917 but there was a warmth to it and I did love looking at this movie he does navigate really well between indoor and outdoor spaces i love Mm -hmm. like when they're on the beach and they're on the bus and of the fireworks when they're on the roof watching those Mm -hmm. another shot that i really loved was the ending of this movie the ending almost made it worth it for me like everything that i didn't like leading up to that when we see Olivia Coleman as Hillary, I'm not going to spoil what movie she's watching, but it's a personal favorite of mine. And the shot in the movie that we see is just glorious. And it does finally, I think, get at that core idea that I was hoping for of this movie, which is just how being in a cinema, how seeing a film can make you feel. And the shot of the movie that Hillary Olivia Coleman is watching reflected on her as she's getting very emotional is really mm. beautiful. The work there, I think, is pretty stunning. I also love seeing all of those movies, like on the marquee, seeing what was coming out. There's a whole scene about the Chariots of Fire film premiering at their theater. But a lot of those, that ending movie I haven't seen yet, but has always been on my list. So. There are a lot here, a lot of recommendations from either Mendez and or Deacons, maybe, that 
are in the film that I would also recommend and need to see. And getting into like talking about the Oscars for this movie and its potential earlier in the season, especially when this released, I was like, Deacon's getting another nomination. We talked on our episode about how he's got nominations for all kinds of works. But I think now I'm a little more weary of him getting a nomination just from other films that have stuck around for many, many months since summer or even before then. So I don't know if it'll be one of the five. But again, it's Deacons. It's pretty. We can't truly count it out just yet. Yeah, so he has been nominated 15 times. I think anytime you get into that, like that number of nominations, you have to consider, you know, even if they don't love the movie, it could be something he could be nominated for anyway. And this movie is, I would guess, more Academy-friendly than critic-friendly. So far, we haven't really gathered, you know, how the industry will respond to it. And what's strange about this category this year is that we have a lot of icons in the field doing work in movies that aren't hitting well. For example... Robbie Richardson, known DP for Martin Scorsese doing Emancipation, that Antoine Fuqua movie on Apple TV. We have Darius Kanji for Bardo. We still don't know what's going to happen with Bardo. We mm-hmm. have Russell Carpenter for Avatar The Way of Water. I think that's completely possible. We have Linus Sandgren for Babylon. We don't know how Babylon's going to hit, but it's very possible that he could make it in. The only thing I think that's a sure thing for this category is Janusz Kaminski for The Fablemans. It's a movie that is going to be high up on the list, and he is a celebrated cinematographer. But everything else here gives me reason to believe that the competition for Deacons might not be as stiff as we're thinking. The weird wrench that's been thrown into the cinematography race this year is Claudio Miranda for Top Gun Maverick. Because mm-hmm. he won New York Film Critics Circle, which is a big deal. Like, they didn't have to do that. Not that they would give it to Deacons, because they don't need to. He's been nominated and has won before, but they didn't need to give it to Top Gun Maverick, and they did. So I think that's a serious threat as well. That's one of the ones I meant when I said certain films have stuck around. And <laughs> I think we can count on that movie and other technical categories, too. I might have to give it a rewatch. (laughs) (laughs) These words hurt. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing about this category. And there are so many others, like All Quiet on the Western Front, which I just don't think is going to play that well with the Academy, but should show up in lots of categories. And then other Best Picture nominees that could likely get the nom over something like this if it doesn't show up there. Yeah. Florian Hoffmeister for Tar. I'm rooting for him to get in. Yeah. We mentioned that win at Camera Image, which is the cinematography ceremony, which Empire of Light was nominated for, but so is Blonde, so is Bardo, so is Top Gun Maverick. So again, kind of a mixed (laughs) category. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. I I forgot that that was a possibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We might be talking about that movie again in a few weeks. (laughs) Do you think any other categories have potential, though, besides cinematography? 
I'm less inclined to say actress now just because that is probably the most competitive category this year. Obviously, the Academy loves Olivia Coleman, but I think she would probably round out like a top 10 if we were talking about nominations. I don't think it's top five, though. And I don't think any of the supporting performances, the script, no, maybe something for costumes, like if that gets a period nom at that guild ceremony. But no, I don't think anything else. And it doesn't have the support like 1917 did for Sam Mendes to get nominations. I think 1917 too benefited from coming out when it did, right? It was late and it sort of hit with a bang. Like people loved 1917 and reacted to it in a very emotional way. I can say that that movie, when I first saw it, moved me in a way that Empire of Light did not. And Mm -hmm. that's how a lot of people are, are voting. And I'm the same way. I think with Olivia Coleman, but right now she's just outside of my five for actress. Okay, so if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I mean, this is a very boring answer, but I'm going to say cinematography for Roger Deakins. It's the best aspect of the movie. I think it is really beautiful work, even if it's not his greatest work. It's still up there. I think he does a lot, a lot with it. And there are really beautiful details the lighting, ugh, all of it. I think it's, I do think it is really beautiful. As always. What about you? Yeah, I would also give it to Roger Deakins. I guess the production design, the art direction of the film is really good as well. And that would be a close second to mine. Because how he captures these spaces is really what makes the film so elegant and brings back this time period so well. But yeah, you can't count against a master and... It really was what kept me going throughout this film. (laughs) (laughs) The way he frames Olivia at the very end between those trees, too, as she's reading the poem is really, really sweet. I love that. Okay, on to the whale. Description here, a reclusive English teacher living with severe obesity attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter for one last chance at redemption. This is directed by Darren Aronofsky. And it was adapted from the play, which was also written by Samuel D. Hunter. It stars Brendan Fraser, Hong Chow, Sadie Sink, and Samantha Morton. Ever since this premiered at Venice, there has been so much praise. This has stuck around in the awards conversation, mainly for Brendan Fraser. But I think as a film, too, it's been predicted in a lot of these top categories And I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. We know Bennett saw it at Venice and it did not work for him. But this was, I think, one of my most anticipated before we knew anything about it this year. And I agree with Bennett. This was such a manipulative film that really, I think, should have stayed a play. The adaptation to the screen, they didn't do much in bringing it to life. And I think the way the characters are written, not to compare it to the sun, boy, but there's just not much there. They're giving so much for what little they have on the page that I think it just plays so big and so over the top that it's either it's quiet or it's a 10. It's a 15. You know, there's no middle ground. Like the way they start this movie on Brendan. It's absolutely cruel. It's it's just cruel. I'm sorry. How did you feel about this movie? So 
a little bit of background on what I bring to this movie, Darren Aronofsky is not my favorite director. I find his style to be excessive and sometimes I can't really get on board with the way that he treats his characters. I find that his style leans into extremity. I find it cruel. I find that it lacks empathy and sometimes it's to no end. He has some exceptions for me where I think that the treatment actually works with what he's trying to say and he often brings allegory into his films. Sometimes that works for me. Sometimes it doesn't. Weirdly, his most hated film, Mother. I thought that the allegory in that worked very well. The way that it unfolded slowly throughout the runtime of the film, I could understand, I think, why he was putting his character, namely the main character, Jennifer Lawrence, through all of that. It was a lot, but I could understand it. The other thing that I bring to this is that I was an English major in college and my advisor was a Melville scholar and her belief was that you could understand the meaning of life through Moby Dick. So I I think that that book is incredibly important and it was written by a genius and this film was not and was not directed by one. And the disconnect between the style of direction and the writing was something that I could not get over throughout the runtime. I think that the script itself tries to find empathy and tries to make you feel things for Charlie, this man who is trapped in his apartment and who has maybe come to the realization that he should have done things differently when interacting with the people in his life, when interacting with his ex-wife or with his daughter or, you know, thinking about how he's responded to his partner's death. The way that it uses Moby Dick and the way that it uses Christianity, I felt rang false. But the direction here is the major problem. The DP, Matthew Libatique, I think he has beautiful work. I loved his work on A Star is Born. I loved his work this year on Don't Worry Darling. But the way that the camera frames Charlie as object only, never subject, things happen to him. The way that the camera leers and lingers and we hear this over-the-top Rob Simonson score that sounds like we're watching a horror film as he's eating, as he's showering, as he's sitting on his couch. It just felt cruel. And I'm not saying that the people who like this movie are cruel or that they don't have empathy or anything like that. I'm not saying anything about the people who this movie worked on. But I love being manipulated at the movies, but not this time. You know, I liked Top Gun Maverick. That's a t- that's an example of a movie that manipulated me, and I was fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> this is a movie that tries to tell you that it's all about honesty and empathy, but in reality, none of it rang true. That's how I feel about The Whale. I try not to be this negative, but this movie really just was a deeply depressing negative experience for me those are totally different types of manipulation though i mean i agree about loving that in movies sometimes but also in allowing that to happen to us but then at the end there's a switch or something else happens and Mm -hmm. that's not what happened here and you see very early of how he is using that technique to 
make us feel or try to make us understand what he's going through, what his family is going through, the horror of it all. I don't think he plays with genre well here. And the score adds into mm-hmm. that. The cinematography, it was almost like how I felt about Mass last year. How oh. that camera felt so stuck in one place and repeated itself over and over with different techniques. Like we had nowhere to go. And I get that. It's based on a play. And I do like that sometimes when, you know, it's a one set movie and we navigate these spaces and we feel claustrophobic. But I didn't feel that way here. I didn't like how, yes, at times it was outside and we did see the natural light coming in through the window or through the door frame, but there was something about it that I didn't love. Well, yeah, and Darren Aronofsky has a knack for making things feel grotesque. He wants things to feel gross, and that's just not okay for this film. You know, conversations about fat phobia and everything aside, if you want to make a movie cruel, make your movie cruel. Don't try to trick me into thinking that it's an honest film about how we need to care about other people and have empathy. Don't do it because I'm not going to believe you. That's where my problem lies as well. It's like you can't treat a character in such a cruel manner and then all of a sudden expect me to buy your emotionally cathartic, supposedly, ending. Nothing in the film has warranted that type of catharsis. And it's okay that people have cried at the end. Like, I don't blame people for feeling moved by this. You can have your own reaction to it. But for me, it didn't earn it. It it reminded me of a sitcom, honestly, like Seinfeld or, for example, or Cheers, where you're in one setting and a character just comes in, says a zinger, and then walks out. That's how it felt. I, I just thought, okay, why why do we have this setup? It has done nothing to make it feel more cinematic. It feels like a play mm-hmm. or a sitcom. Not every character needs to be just walking in and shouting something for the audience to react. Maybe we talk about the things that we liked in the movie or the performances. This is an after dark. Say three nice things about that. This <laughs> the is. Movie. This is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, we are supposed to pity Charlie, but he has no self-respect or desire to better himself. Like, he won't go to the hospital. He won't do these things. Like, Liz comes, and this is Hong Chao, to take care of him and save him multiple times from dying. But he's just beyond the point that he cares about living anymore. That part, to me, is hard to understand Especially as, you know, we're given the days of the week as titles and we are counting down until he dies. We know that from the very beginning, there was a moment, it was kind of fun to see this with an audience and hear, yes, everybody sob at the end, but there's a line early on where Liz takes his blood pressure and he's like, well, what, what is it? And she says 238 over 134. And everybody in the audience was like, Jesus under their breath like you just the audience reaction to it all was that was honestly one of the most traumatizing things for me watching this because yeah the the blood pressure and things like that where there was a moment when he dropped his key my crowd started laughing when he couldn't pick it up interesting and i just felt awful i i just it i can't even explain how horrible it made me feel just 
how the audience would react. And there's a moment when Liz, his nurse, she sort of enables him, right? Like they have this extended relationship that isn't explored in the way that I think it could have been to make that character feel more mm-hmm. fleshed out, more like a real person. I do think that Hong Chao's character feels the most like a real person in this movie. But there was a moment when she gives him fried chicken after she scolded him for not going to the hospital. And I was like, okay, there's there's actually like something interesting here with this character. Maybe we'll explore that. When she gives him the fried chicken, my audience was like, oh, oh my God. And then some people were laughing. Mm. I was like, this movie clearly doesn't know what it's what it's going for here besides this type of leering gesture to elicit a response like that, to elicit an extreme response from the audience. So yes, that's that manipulation, I think, again, that you're talking about. We didn't have any laughing. That's kind of shocking. But I mean, I laughed at some of the poorly written lines, but not at the actions, the, yeah. the drama that was happening. No, there were moments in my theater where like people really were laughing hard. Ugh, that's awful. I mean, I laughed when it's Sadie Singh's first line. She comes in and she says, does this mean I'm going to get fat? I was like, are you serious? You're going to introduce a character, the mm-hmm. man's daughter, this way? And she says yeah. some awful things to him. Just such profanities. Like, really? And, like, we've been teenagers before. Like, we get it. Teens can be terrible and mean and scary. And will react emotionally and impulsively in ways that you can't explain. But this girl... And the way that this character was written, and I'm sorry, the way that and the way that Sadie Sink portrays her, she felt like a caricature of a bad teen. Mm-hmm. It didn't. She didn't feel like a real person. She just. She didn't to me. Just overly devilish too. And then in again in the end, we're supposed to feel for her and be there in this moment. And I just didn't. But work she doesn't for me. want us to. She doesn't make us feel anything for her because she's unchanged. She is unmoved. <laughs> That's at least what her performance dictated to me, was that she has not reacted at all to this. So getting into some Oscar potential, it's very clear that Brendan Fraser will have a nomination, but how do you think it'll do in other categories? It's I'm so torn here because I do want to see how the industry responds to it. I think it's possible that they could be very moved by it. And I'm so I'm not counting it out. For sure. It didn't make the AFI top 10 or the NBR top 10 list that came out, which I do think is a red flag. We, of course, have had movies who haven't made those lists get into Best Picture before. So it's not out of the question. But I think I just need to wait and see what the industry thinks of it. I think before I saw the movie, I thought, oh, this is probably going to be a contender in things like picture, adapted screenplay, which is very thin, actor of course supporting actress and makeup and hairstyling specifically i think some of those options are still possible but i do think the strongest places for nominations are lead actor for brendan fraser i do think his performance is good in the movie he was one of the only people and only aspects of the film that i felt was trying to search for something else was trying to get a little bit deeper Because I do think he does the most with a script that is really, really tough on him. And a director who's really tough on him. As far as a win goes, I don't see it like I did before. 
Yeah, it does feel very much like Benedict from last year where it's all we're talking about, or at least critically, he's winning a lot of these awards. And I mean, we still have yet to see wins for a lot of these critic circles, but yes, he is getting nominated. I feel the same way. I think there are chances for other actors like Colin Farrell to come in and take the prize away. And I wouldn't be upset in the least for his win there. I think they both have these narratives of it's their time to win. Yeah, I think with Fraser, what's interesting is I wonder if the comeback narrative is enough to take him across the finish line. Because a recent example that I've been using is the Glenn Close, Olivia Coleman year, where Glenn Close, it was all about narrative. It wasn't about the film. She was the lone nominee for her film. And people were talking about, you know, it's her time to win. It's her time to win. It was all about that narrative. Meanwhile, Olivia Coleman won the Volpe Cup, just like Colin Farrell. She was winning critics' prizes, and she won at the Globes and the BAFTA. And that's a path that I think Colin Farrell can definitely have. It's also my favorite male performance of the year. So mm-hmm. I, I really am hopeful that he can win. But... I think Austin Butler is also a serious threat here that we have to think about because Elvis is playing so well and oh, yeah. he's playing a real person. Like he he has all of the trademarks, I think, of someone who can come up and win, except for the fact that he's rather young, right? Like that's always something that I think can hinder or an actor from winning this award. But yeah, I'd watch out for him too. It's a weird category this year. Other categories for me... I really don't want to say adapted screenplay because I don't think it deserves it, but it is one that I think could happen if the Academy ends up really liking this film. It is pretty high on Gold Derby, and here I am predicting like the 15th nominee, like Bones and All and All Quiet on the Western Front to try to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. I think we actually should talk about Hong Chao. An actress Mm -hmm. who I really, really love, who actually gave one of my favorite supporting performances this year in a different movie, Showing Up, which will come out, which I saw at New York Film Festival, will come out next spring. I feel like she really, really tried her best here. And there are moments where I actually really liked what she was doing with Liz, this character, who I think Mm -hmm. is maybe the character who is the most complex in the movie. The script and the direction completely failed her. There were moments when she was directed to play to the back of the house, to go to a 12, when I think what she was doing when she was just sitting on the couch with Charlie and just talking to him, talking to the missionary who came over, like those were great scenes for her. And I really liked what she was doing there. But then he just took it to an extreme like he always does. And here, I think with that dialogue that feels pretty dated at times, it wasn't, it didn't work for me. And I, I was sad because I love Hong Chao and I, I wanted to really love this performance too. It has been quite a year for her. And based on her performance in the menu, I was worried and kind of confused by her being predicted in supporting actress. But once I saw the movie, I really got it. And I was like, okay, I think a nomination could happen here. And I feel the same exact way, like her quieter moments when she's just there talking with Charlie. I loved her. I think she had more charisma than she's usually given. 
and more room to play with the script. But when, I mean, like every character in this movie, like when they are yelling, there's just nothing else for them to do. It's them berating Charlie over and over and over again. And then him saying, I'm sorry. And there's, there's nothing to take from those moments than just pity. But I think otherwise she does an incredible job. And if she does get a nomination, she does deserve it. She's another one where, like, if she gets a nomination, I'm not going to be mad about it in the least. Mm-hmm. Like, I think she does what she can with this character. And this is this also gives me an opportunity to recommend another favorite movie of 2020, Driveways, that she's quite good in. I totally agree. Okay. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give it to Brendan Fraser. I think this is his big moment to shine, his emergence back into the awards conversation. And I hope from here he gets even bigger roles. But I think the way he navigates who Charlie is, what he's gone through, makes us feel, for better or worse, for his character. He does an amazing job with that. And I think there are glimpses of humanity that he shares with us that could have been harder to do with other actors. What would you give it? I completely agree. I would give Brendan Fraser best actor. Everything that you said, I completely agree with. I think he is the one shining instance in the movie for me of someone trying to be a human despite what is written on the page for him and the direction he was given. And he made me feel for Charlie. He did. And it, for me, was a good example of a good performance in a bad movie. And that happens, you know, multiple times Mm -hmm. in an award season. And if he does win the Oscar, I'm not going to be upset. As much as I love Colin Farrell, he does what's in his control here to try to elevate the material. There are other nominations, though, where if the movie receives them, I will not be happy. Okay, and next up we have Pinocchio. Description here, a darker version of the classic children's fairy tale of a wooden puppet that transforms into a real living boy. This was directed by Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafson. The voice work in this movie, I think, is incredible. We have Ewan McGregor, Kate Blanchett, Tilda Swinton, John Torturo, Gregory Mann, and more. This movie premiered at the London Film Festival, and we saw it last week here in New York, which was exciting. I actually took my parents to see this over Thanksgiving as well, so it's had sort of an interesting rollout, but now it's available on Netflix. What did you think of Pinocchio? I thought it was an incredibly beautiful film. I love how Guillermo del Toro transformed the story and I think added to it more than previous adaptations have. It is a fairly dark tale originally. And yes, Mm -hmm. like Disney changed that and made it kid friendly. And I think Guillermo plays with both of those elements really, really well. And obviously the animation of it all and his vision is just so captivating. Like there are no moments where you feel bored or your eyes aren't totally awed by what's happening on screen. I especially loved the wood sprite, which is who Tilda Swinton voices Mm -hmm. and like the wings and the eyes and how all of that plays into the character. I also really loved Jiminy Cricket, who is voiced by Ewan McGregor. And not only his omniscient presence in the film and him narrating the story of Pinocchio, but also this 
fun, dark, playful humor of him getting like beat up over and over again. And I think just with the meaning of it all, I, it comes together so well in the end. Like it is a very emotional finale. But what Del Toro is teaching us, not only about Pinocchio, but I feel like he adds to it in teaching us, like, be who you want to be, don't listen to anybody else, was just so beautiful. And Mm -hmm. to capture that in an animated film, a stop motion film, something really for kids and adults is really hard to do. And it's something that I, I just put on and I could just have this in the background, like at all times and not be mad. Yeah, the score just came out last Friday and mm-hmm. I was listening to it throughout my work day because it is just, it's so beautiful. I love the world that this movie creates. And it reminded me a lot of, you know, when I was little, I loved, I don't know, like scarier things in my animated films. Like I loved Disney villains. I loved a darker fairy tale. I loved that. I loved those weird, scary storybooks that I would get at the library. And I remember when we talked to Tom Moore and Ross Stewart about Wolfwalkers, they mentioned that kids like scary things. You don't need to sugarcoat and sanitize everything for them. And I love that this movie didn't do that. This movie talks about death and it talks about fascism and violence Mm -hmm. and these like really intense topics in a way that adults and children can appreciate and actually honored those original fairy tales in the way that it incorporated those themes into the story and into the characters. I really, really appreciated that as a viewer. And yeah, the animation is just beautiful. I love the actual look of Pinocchio. I think that he is this little, like very whimsical boy This is the first time I've ever seen a version of Pinocchio where Pinocchio actually moves like a marionette or like a puppet. The way that his limbs bend and the sound work of, you know, his joints creaking or his head moving a certain way. I thought that that was pretty remarkable. I also just love the detail of what his head looked like, how his hair was sort of carved into the back and... His Mm -hmm. little ears. Yeah, I I thought he was really, really cute. And the way that his nose would grow was really creative and would sort of sprout these branches and leaves. At one point, it sprouts figs. That was really, really cool. And yeah, it was just one that I had been looking forward to for a long time. But it's one where like, I, I feel like kids can get a lot out of it, too. This is also a musical. Like It has original songs in it, which I didn't really realize when I was going into it, I thought Mm -hmm. it would just have that beautiful score. But no, the songs in it are also quite catchy. I loved hearing Guillermo talk about this movie. When you talk about Pinocchio's movements, Guillermo said, I didn't want him just to move. I wanted him to act like a real boy too and to feel. Mm -hmm. And to hear that this took, I think it was like three years just to make it, let alone pre-production is insane. The animation of it all, the production design, these sets, there's still every component in this movie. And I think the way he plays with genre here is impeccable. This movie is so funny, but again, it's a fable. It is teaching you important lessons in life, and it's also a drama. I mean, it has everything in it. And while you may think you know Pinocchio, what Guillermo does here makes this, I think, my favorite adaptation 
Yeah, it's definitely my favorite adaptation. I love the way that it begins and the way that we see Geppetto have this bond with his son Carlo, who he ends up losing. I think that establishing that character and the bond that he had with his son was so important. And it was really beautiful, I think, how the theme and loss as a motif runs through the film. And the voice work is incredible. David Bradley as Geppetto, I loved him. I mostly know him as Filch from Harry Potter, so (laughs) that was fun. Ewan McGregor as Sebastian J. Cricket is amazing. This is a great voice performance. If voice work was recognized by the Academy, five stars (laughs) for him. I think that he brings a lot of humor to this character that's so well known. We have to mention Kate Blanchett as Spazzatura, the monkey. Mm -hmm. I think about Guillermo del Toro calling Kate Blanchett and saying, I have a role for you if you want to (laughs) help. You're going to come into the studio and make monkey sounds all day. (laughs) It's just such a great contrast to her work in Tar this year where she's just this towering character. Here she just gets to have some fun making monkey noises. I need the videos of this. Yes, we need like the... Have you seen the videos of Bradley Cooper when he's doing Rocket Raccoon? No. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> go go look them up. It's it's very, very funny. But yeah, no, I love watching like videos of actors doing voice mm-hmm. work. It's very fun. But yeah, we need the Kate Blanchett Spazzatura reel. And Gregory Mann, who plays Pinocchio, I thought he was excellent. Pinocchio is very stubborn. You know, he's like a wooden boy, but he's he acts like a child who's, you know, tempted by candy and popcorn and hot chocolate and everything else. And I thought Gregory Mann did a great job playing Pinocchio, too. So I think the cast across the board was just excellent. I think for me, this is leading animated feature. I think we have other big ones like Marcel the Shell with Shoes on that has a lot of support, at least with general audiences. And some critic circles, too. But also, the new Puss in Boots has gotten really rave reviews. Yeah. And people are saying I'm so that excited to see it. <laughs> is their favorite animated film this year. So I really want Pinocchio to win. But I think there mm-hmm. is good competition out there. And we haven't even mentioned a Disney film yet, which is such a nice relief for once. It really is. I think I love Marcel the Shell with Shoes on also. I'm hoping that that pops up but i do think that pinocchio is our leader in animated feature right now we'll definitely talk about the movie more and like how they created this world on our contender series unless something crazy happens and this somehow gets snubbed i don't think that will happen but yeah i think that this also being maybe netflix's biggest movie this year is Mm -hmm. wild right like how did this i have no idea how this happened but Yeah, I think that this is one of Netflix's best chances to win an Oscar in a major category this year. They also have Glass Onion, but we really don't know, I think, what's going to happen with that film. And I just, frankly, honestly, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't, I'm not sure exactly like what I will think of it and how it'll pop up. Yeah, I think this could be Netflix's best film at the Oscars, which is so crazy. I mean, it has Bardo yet to come out and White Noise at least wider on its platform. Mm -hmm. But I would love to see Pinocchio get into Best Picture. 
you know, it doesn't happen very often for animated films, but I think this is a case where it should happen. Yeah. I mean, I would put it in the picture 10. Like I, that would be such Mm -hmm. an inspired, cool nomination. And for me, if an animated film gets in there this year, it should be this one from what I've seen so far. So other categories though, like I feel it's really only animated feature feels like a sure thing. And then picture feels like a maybe that that could happen. But as far as anything else goes, it does have potential in the music categories, I think. Mm-hmm. The score by Alexander Desplat is beautiful. I love the score. And they're also running Chow Papa as an original song. So I think that both of those definitely have a chance, especially if this hits well with the Academy. Yeah, I think it should show up in both of those categories. I don't know how production design would play in oh it could yeah especially the way that so right now psa for anyone in new york visiting new york living in new york anything like that there's a fantastic exhibit of these puppets and this world at moma go see it but Mm -hmm. that just the comment on production design made me think of it because it is so intricate and there are a lot of different spaces that we move through a carnival this like italian fascist training camp we have the scene with that giant, not a whale, but a huge fish that they get stuck in. So, yeah, it's there are a lot of different sets in it that are really, really neat. Yeah, there are a lot of videos online, too, of Del Toro talking about how they made this world and how they envisioned it and using hundreds of different models just for certain characters. Like with Pinocchio, he was made of so many different sizes based on who else was in the frame, like if they're with the cricket and showing those differences between their sizes. I think that's phenomenal and just really fun to hear about everything that happened on set. I mean, this was, again, such a long production and so much time went into it. So I'm excited to hear and see more about how they made it for sure. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? As much as I love the score... I would give a best animated feature, I think just as a film. The film as a whole is just, it's so beautiful. And the story just, it really moved me in an unexpected way. And yeah, I loved everything about it. So I would give it animated feature. What about you? I would also give it animated film. I want to give it like something bigger, mm-hmm. kind of like best picture, honestly. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it is so deserving of that prize and... I hope it does win. Guillermo del Toro really proved himself here that he can navigate different worlds if it's live action or stop motion. Okay, and now on to spoiler alert, which we'll go through this quickly, but I definitely had the biggest emotional response to this movie out of these four. Description here, the story of Michael Ocelio and Kit Cohen's relationship that takes a tragic turn when Cohen is diagnosed with terminal cancer. It's directed by Michael Showalter, who, if you remember, directed The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And it stars Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, Sally Field, and more. I don't want to spoil <laughs> the one appearance that I like jumped on. So <laughs> I think going into this movie, if you've seen the trailer, you know it's about one of the characters getting cancer and the story of their relationship together and how they deal with the diagnosis. This is adapted from a book called Spoiler Alert, The Hero Dies. So it's also 
literally in the title that it's, you know, mm-hmm. a sad story. Something happens. I was sobbing. My Thankfully, my theater was also sobbing. It was just a torrent of tears. Excellent alliteration. Nonstop. I think the last hour, my my face was not dry at all. And there is a moment with Sally Field that I just absolutely lost it. Like thinking if she were my mother, ugh, it's it's just so heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but also so beautiful. I think the way they frame the relationship, it's also New York story. I actually really liked Jim Parsons in this. That's maybe my favorite movie of his. Yeah. The funniest thing was during this movie, I saw it with my sister and she turned to me and she was like, he's not annoying me at all. <laughs> yeah I thought he was great here I thought this movie was just really sweet and my theater like yours was sobbing like choked sobs like fully it was loud in there I think I mean people were really responding to this movie whether it was laughing really hard at the beginning to sobbing at the end like people I think were really Mm -hmm really responsive to it i loved sally field in this i think anytime just seeing her but she she has a scene when after kit and michael go to visit kit's parents to tell him about the cancer diagnosis and it's the day after that and his mom and michael decide that they're gonna go for a run and there's a moment when michael thinks that she's going to talk about how she couldn't sleep the night before because of the news that they shared about the diagnosis but she starts rambling about this woman who is sort of her rival in the triathlon space where she she does these triathlons and she's rambling about this ranting about this woman and it sort of becomes clear how people respond to grief differently it's like of course she doesn't actually care about this but that's what she's putting her energy mm-hmm. into about her son because she can't actually think about her son and the diagnosis and I thought that was that was really moving to me but yeah I think this movie is just like a feel good feel bad movie <laughs> to go see <laughs> I think it's our generation stepmom which is another tough I think Thanksgiving film but one that the relationship between Susan Sarandon and Julia Roberts is just undeniably beautiful, sad, depressing. Yeah, lots of ugly crying, but it's also very cathartic. I think Ben Aldridge also does an amazing job. And mm-hmm. I saw the trailer for Knock at the Cabin, which is coming out in January, I believe. And he's in that. And I was like, oh, yay. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was great. Another good movie reference that was in there. I loved the line when when Michael, the Jim Parsons character, starts yelling at the mm. nurse to get yes. him the bed, and he's <laughs> like, "It worked for Shirley MacLaine." I loved that little <laughs> terms of endearment reference. So I think we both definitely recommend this movie. It's out in theaters now, and then the others we mentioned, Empire of Light and The Whale, are also in theaters, and Pinocchio is on Netflix. Okay, and now we're going to get into some actual awards announcements. We've had quite a busy two weeks, really, with the New York Film Critics Circle and the LA Film Critics Association. These are our two big critics groups. We're not really going to be talking about like regional, smaller groups. Those announcements, you can look and see who they voted for, but as far as sort of bellwethers for the Oscars... We look at New York and L.A. there. 
We also got the AFI top 10 and the NBR top 10. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And lastly, we will talk about the Golden Globes, those nominations, what it means that the Golden Globes are back and more. We're here. Yeah, we're not going to be talking about certain cities, critics, groups, giving it to Jackass forever. I'm glad people are having fun with this and giving certain people noms where they do deserve that we know aren't going to show up but exactly yes (laughs) that let alone (laughs) others will not be showing up (laughs) but we did have some exciting wins coming out of new york and la tar yes it's split at la but it won both of those awards Mm -hmm. which i think is huge for a movie that i didn't expect to be winning top prizes maybe director noms and nods maybe you know like a tie or something for Todd Field but I mean yes he also won at LA but it's just taking everybody by storm and I'm very happy about that me too yeah it's great because we both love tar and seeing that there you know that wasn't a given I think we expected that to be a critics movie yes but not necessarily the type of critics film that everyone decides to coalesce around like that's pretty rare for that to happen for it to go for LA and New York to pick the same movie it did happen notably last year with drive my car and that movie did go on to get a best picture nomination get a best director nomination for Hamaguchi adapted screenplay and international feature and that had even more hurdles to clear than tar right being a Japanese Mm -hmm. film by Janice films like that movie had a steeper hill to climb Tar, I think, you know, this is definitely a sign that people love this movie and that whether people want to say it's accessible or not or made enough money or not, I'm pushing that noise aside and I'm saying, you know what, it's a top contender and that's exciting to me. I think this gives Todd Field a little bit more room to campaign a bit harder and I feel like he could have a real shot at the Oscar director now. For him not to have been directing for 16 years, to come back, to make something this powerful about the moment, I think it's possible. Wow. It's kind of a cool turn. Yes, we have Spielberg there. Yes, they are both nominated at the Globes. And like I said, Todd won at LA and Spielberg won at NBR. But I think it's still anybody's game. With women talking kind of falling out, at least from these critics' prizes, things we've seen, Today, Golden Globe noms, it's not showing up where I expected it to, which is a little sad, especially for these groups that, you know, for a movie like The Power of the Dog, that soared, this just isn't showing up. So if that's falling out, I think director-wise, those two may be in the lead. We, We can talk about picture and the Globes of it all later and how everything else is doing. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's sort of a a sleeper contender for director and that is big jim back with avatar the way of water but (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean with director it's interesting because i think you know what people do is they tend to look at past seasons and when you look at past seasons recently right we had sweepers and director we had chloe Zhao, we had jane campion you know and, and their films were hits with critics and hits with the industry and This year, we had sort of slotted Steven Spielberg in there. I think for me, always expecting Mm -hmm. that his film would be more of an industry play 
than a critic's hit. So I don't really think we have to worry too much about that. But I think there's definitely room for someone to come in and take that away from him. If his movie isn't as strong and it's just a case of, you know, it's time to give Steven Spielberg another director Oscar, that's not really something that inspires passion from voters. And we need that in director. And with Sarah Polly, you know, unfortunately, I think for women talking, for her to sort of repeat that Jane Campion, Chloe Zhao energy that we got, I think up to this point, her movie not being embraced in the way that we thought, that's sort of a death knell, I think, for her director campaign, at least to win. I think it's still possible that mm-hmm. she gets in, but yeah, I, I do think Field definitely has a chance there, for sure, which is exciting. We can talk about some other fun sweepers happening, mm-hmm. you know, while it's not in those top categories just yet. We do have some fun actors showing up. Mm-hmm. We sure do. You know, this is the period that I usually call the warm glow of award season because my favorites are usually doing very well in this like critics period before the industry comes in and crushes my dreams. So my dear Colin Farrell with his lead performance for the Banshees of Inisherin, he is really doing well with critics prizes. You know, he he just keeps winning. Some of those are regional critics prizes, but he did win New York. He didn't win LA, but I think that's okay. And Kate Blanchett, right, winning New York Film Critics Circle and LA Film Critics Circle. I'll note that for LA, they do um, non-gendered categories. So they just have lead performer where she shares the award with Bill Nye, who I think is, you know, now a very real contender and best actor. For living, he has Sony Pictures Classics behind him. Hugh Jackman is campaigning for him, which shows you, I think, where Sony Pictures Classics or their priorities might lie with films. But yeah, I think so far we're off to a good start. But yeah, I don't know if necessarily both of these will hold. But I do think safely now we can consider that Farrell and Blanchett are our front runners for actor and actress. Whether that holds or not all remains to be seen. I think there are contenders in both of those categories that could definitely put up a fight and even win, which is fun, right? It's early. Yeah, we had Michelle Yeoh winning NBR. And I think if we look to the Globes a little bit and how those are, whether we want to believe it or not, a good bellwether for winners to come, I think the stat is more an actress. But if we look at actor and who may win i really think it may come down to austin butler in calling elvis a drama is just insane <laughs> there's a lot but of drama in the film <laughs> of of all of these <laughs> category choices we're gonna put elvis in drama <laughs> okay i i feel like though elvis follows the similar thought of like bohemian rhapsody or even a star is born going drama instead of musical it could just be an actor choice, like a movie choice to get in there. But if we look at musical or comedy, I think Colin Farrell has that. So if this is a Butler-Farrell race, I think Farrell has the edge. And with all of these prizes, that may be very possible. Yes, Brendan Fraser is also nominated, but he hasn't won any of the prizes like we kind of expected him to mm-hmm. based on that initial reaction and praise out of festivals and into award season yeah. 
So that's like really shocking, actually. Yeah, I think, yeah, after those standing ovations, it was always Brendan Fraser is a lock to win. He's winning Best Actor. I personally always had my doubts about that, it being an Aronofsky film. I just wasn't ready to call it or anything like that yet. And yeah, I mean, the thing about Butler is like a lot of things are working in his favor. Just like I talked about a little bit ago, you know, he's he's playing a real person in a biopic about a musician. It's not like we haven't seen that before, right? I think if we're looking at performance alone for actor, Austin Butler is the easier person for an Academy member to vote for over Colin Farrell, just based on performance. They don't tend to go for these like sensitive, understated male performances. It's really rare that they do that. But the thing that Colin Farrell has working in his favor is that they loved the Banshees of Inisherin, the Golden Globes. Mm-hmm. And that movie has international appeal. And I personally haven't heard polarizing reactions about that movie like I've heard from some of the others. Banshees has all four actors nominated mm-hmm. for the Globes, yep. which is crazy and great. But yeah, I think we're seeing a shift there that I think more is possible than maybe we initially thought. Definitely. Just getting into some of the supporting categories, Kihoi Kwan has won everything. Mm -hmm. I think this is the narrative for the rest of the season, and rightfully so. His speech at the Gothams. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I had to put money down on any single person in the acting race this year in any category, it would be him. The only one he hasn't won was NBR, and that went to Brendan Gleeson. But everything else, New York, LA, it's all him. Mm -hmm. So that feels like a pretty sure thing right now. In supporting actress, I just want to mention Kiki Palmer. I love this choice for New York. Yes, it's so good. (laughs) And I, I wanted to bring this up today because I really think that you were instrumental at least into putting this in the ether because when you said you would give your oscar to kiki palmer i always thought she was maybe a lead but you specified supporting you were like she could be supporting and that was the first time i had ever thought about that and then when she was announced in supporting and people were freaking out about category fraud i would rather kiki palmer have a win somewhere than to have people you know, getting in a fit about her category placement. But Mm -hmm. yeah, you really put this out into the universe and (laughs) I'm grateful for that. (laughs) I don't think this is as big a fraud as Lakeith. Yeah, or even Carrie Mulligan and She Said, (laughs) which is so crazy to me. But at LA with supporting, Dolly DeLeon won for Triangle of Sadness which mm-hmm. I do remember when I saw that movie at New York Film Festival and like Ruben Ostland, his films do not work for me. That's okay. I do remember thinking at the time, ooh, the Academy is going to like this. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't work for us, but they really do work for the industry and Academy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I will say, though, like if anything from that movie gets nominated, if anyone from that movie gets nominated... Dolly De Leon is the right choice. Like she was my favorite part of the movie. The third act I thought was the best act of the movie and she really killed it. So I'm happy she's getting recognition. And sometimes mm-hmm. it does take a critics group like this to really start the train to get that nomination. Yeah, and it's showing up 
in picture at the Globes as well, I think shows mm-hmm. that there is more potential. And, you know, we have to think about international directors and pictures getting in apart from ones nominated in foreign language feature, like at the Globes or whatnot. But Triangle of Sadness is one that could even maybe push into screenplay now, too. I think it's very, very possible. If this, like, watch out. If this gets, like, if she gets in at SAG and we start to see random wins for it or notices for it anywhere, like, it did really well at the European Film Awards. It won Mm -hmm. almost every big category. That is a sign to me, right? It can't get recognized in international feature, but it still has that international appeal that Mm -hmm. the Academy can go for. Maybe even it makes it into our picture 10. Those like nine and 10 spots for picture are tough. They're very in flux right now. Well, while we're on picture, let's talk about NBR and AFI, which movies showed up there, at least the comparisons, because we had seven overlapping between each of their top 10 lists. Those seven are Avatar The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, Top Gun Maverick, The Women King, and Women Talking. So there we have two female-led pictures, and then big blockbusters from this year. Avatar will soon be added to that list, Everything Everywhere, Top Gun, and The Woman King. I mean, the thing about The Woman King that's interesting is that we'll talk about it a little bit more with the Golden Globes, but... This movie has been playing so well for Mm -hmm. the industry. You know, if you see videos on YouTube or clips that are circulating, it's packed Q&As with Gina Prince-Bythewood and Viola Davis and Tuso Mbedu. Like, this movie is hitting people, and they're listing it as one of their favorites. And this isn't, like, a critical thing. This is people in the industry, specifically. Mm -hmm. So... I will not be surprised if this movie really comes back in a real way because it's a hit and it's really, really resonating with people. It has a director who I think a lot of people in the industry find is underappreciated. And it has like one of the most charismatic actors in the business. I feel like that's sort of a, a recipe for success. And the Golden Globes, like I don't count those as industry awards. This is a group that we don't know a lot about still, no matter what they tell us. So I think when we get, you know, like maybe DGA, PGA, SAG, we might see the Woman King. Yeah, the number of members in the HFPA is just way too small compared to other industry groups to be able to say like, oh, it's showing up here. So of course it's there. But I think hearing about these screenings that you're talking about, Also with Elvis, these Mm -hmm. are just hitting so hard that I was like, okay, I have to take She Said out of my picture 10. I have to take Glass Onion out because Netflix just totally bombed that release and I think hurt it from even showing up there. I think it was possible, but not anymore for movies like this that everyone is talking about, everyone is going to see, just packed crowds, and I wouldn't be surprised if they get re-releases back in theaters for the public too yeah i mean if we look at this list what is one thing that you notice not a single movie on this list premiered on a streaming platform yeah nothing from netflix nothing from apple it's not about the streaming this year it is about movies that people 
love and when to go see. And, you know, maybe that's bad news for a movie like The Fablemans that didn't do well at the box office. Maybe it won't matter. But box office and the Oscars, it's always a tricky conversation to have or a thing to think about because, you know, a movie like Tar doesn't need a high box office to get into Best Picture. That movie was never going to make a lot of money. But a movie like Top Gun Maverick, it's here because it made a lot of money and it was in the conversation. And a movie like Avatar The Way of Water could get into Best Picture because James Cameron, right, like defied the odds and made all of this money, knock on wood, and that's why it will be there. So, you know, movies have, like, different standards when it comes to box office and the Oscars. Like, that's certainly something to keep in mind. But I think the way that the landscape looks this year, it is leaning more towards these bigger, more populist picks. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, if we look at those seven that we listed, that leaves room for three more unless you're replacing something else. So, for me... Right now, I have these seven plus Tar, <laughs> Elvis, and then my final spot will either, I think, go to Babylon or Triangle of Sadness. We're almost the same. I have Elvis and Tar as well. My 10th spot, I keep switching like every week. I'm keeping Pinocchio in there because I took out Babylon when I saw it, but I think it was Glass Onion two days ago. <laughs> It's never been the whale, but I think, yeah, we have a few things that could go in there. The one that, like, I thought I would never say is RRR. Oh, my God. Okay, is it time to talk about RRR? <laughs> it is. Yeah, so I still haven't seen RRR. I know I need to. S.S. Rajamuli got Best Director for the New York Film Critics Circle. He was runner-up for L.A., So it is very possible that he, you know, makes it in. He's definitely on my long list right now. Like he's in my 10. If I look at the big list of who could get in there. But yeah, it's one of those things where you have to think about it, I think, two ways. And I'm not sure where I stand on it right now. One, you can think, well, India really screwed up and they didn't select it as their official submission to the Oscars. And because of that, the movie will be penalized. People aren't required to watch it. It's not going to have eyeballs on it because it's an international feature contender. And therefore, it'll be shut out of the nominations. That's certainly a way you can look at it. Or you can look at it and say, people saw this movie. People love this movie. And because it's not India's selection, they're going to vote for it harder. Mm -hmm. They're going to make a point to vote for it in other categories like picture, director, song. It appeared in song at the Golden Globes for Not To Not To. So I think either either thing is possible, really. I'll see it soon, and then I'll decide where I land. I think the narrative for them to perform that song at the Oscars is a very real threat. And it would be fun. It would get everybody up singing, dancing. I think it's very possible. And I think it's showing up here for sure. And it was also in foreign language. Again, it's a contender that showed that it had promise. People kept talking about it. And here it is. It's happening. On the flip side, the other one that is showing up, but I feel like is losing steam, is All Quiet on the Western Front, which I would love to see win in the foreign language category at the Globes. Love to see show up in other technical categories. 
we don't have the original and adapted categories at the Globes, so I don't know if it would have been in like a 10 Mm -hmm. maybe, but I'm like not feeling so hot on this in terms of like how the industry is feeling about it. Yeah, it's interesting because we don't have a big international contender that is taking all the prizes, really. Mm -hmm. I would say besides RRR, weirdly, Decision to Leave isn't doing it. Like Critics didn't really bite on that, which I know a lot of people thought maybe could happen for Park Chan-wook or Park Hae-il, someone in the cast, but it's just not. And we have other international features like Santo Mare that we really liked, but that might be too academic for the Academy. Close is very much a possibility. So is All Quiet on the Western Front. But we don't have these movies like last year with Drive My Car and The Worst Person in the World that are just picking up wins places. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that could leave room for RRR to come in in other categories. All Quiet did win Adapted Screenplay at NBR and Close won International Film. So, yeah, like you're saying, mm-hmm. everything is switching off, which I do love a race, like an actual race. And having these films show up in different places. So I'm not necessarily upset about all this. It's just harder to predict what may happen or what may show up in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, let's transition into talking about the mysterious problem child of award season that mm-hmm. is the Golden Globes. So the show is going to be back on NBC and Peacock. After taking a break last year, they had this bizarre ceremony where it was like a closed door ceremony at the Beverly Hilton where they tweeted out their results. But they did pick some good winners last year. I'll give them that. They've added new members. It's still a really small voting body. And they're international journalists. That's all we know about them still. And it's just, it is weird that I feel like we play this game every few years where there's a scandal they go away or ignore it and then they come back and it's like all of a sudden nothing happened and everyone's excited for the golden globes again Mm -hmm. it's really really strange and right now we're in that period where it seems like people are excited for the globes to return but when the nominations came out the thing that i was making a point to do was sort of checking nominees and studios social media to Mm -hmm. see if they reacted and i barely saw anything besides from individual films i would see like a picture of kate blanchett that would say nominated for golden globes in best film best actress drama best screenplay like you would see things like that but i didn't see or hear from individual nominees on Twitter or Instagram they were like wow I'm so excited to be nominated for a Golden Globe there was one wait I think I saw this and I'm forgetting who it was oh you would know wait who is it I forgot there were two because I had the same thought I was like wait I want to see if Brendan Fraser reacted Mm -hmm. or said anything and I haven't found anything yet but I was like I haven't seen anything on Twitter. Still, everything is White Lotus. And there's nothing like no videos from the Emmys or Oscars of like them crying or reacting, you know, clapping. So shocked. There were two. One was Jessica Chastain. She's in TV. Yes. Yes. Okay. I did see her. The other. 
Is it Taylor Swift? No. Oh my God, did she? I mean, she loves awards, yeah. so I figured she would, but No, this who is, is for somebody who really should be happy and honored to be nominated, and it's Hugh Jackman. Ana de Armas, she was thankful. She did too. Yes. Okay, that was the other one I remember. Mine was Hugh Jackman. He posted a oh, video, God. and I didn't have the heart to actually watch the video. Oh, no. So for listeners, I finally watched The Sun, and it was as bad as Nick told me. It may be worse. You sending little screenshots made me kind of want to watch it again, which is so twisted. Oh, What a movie. But yeah, so there were only a small handful, but do you think people will show up to this award show? Like, Do you think it will sort of be business as usual? I think Jamie Lee Curtis will be the first one there. That was so shady. (laughs) I think it's going to be a mixed bag. I feel like people will show up. We have a host. People know how much fun it is. You know, they get free drinks, free dinner, free everything, which is also kind of a messed up way to think about it based on, you know, what this Mm -hmm. group has done or what they've evaded in the past. But like you said, you know, I think they're trying to be mainstream again and happen and be back in the awards conversation, show that they do have power in who ends up making it into other groups or the Oscars in terms of nominations and wins. So I do think it will be like a fully produced thing that happens that millions of people will watch. It may dip in ratings, but I think it will still happen. It's weird. I mean, it's on a Tuesday this year. Also that, not helping themselves. No, but it's what is sort of crazy about the Globes. Again, just, I mean, I've had issues with the Golden Globes for many reasons, but another issue that I have is that this is a group of 100 people that have an extreme outsized influence on Mm -hmm. everything else for the rest of award season because they go first. They're the big televised award show. And, you know, if people see that Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh win actress let's say drama and comedy musical they're going to remember those speeches for instance or they're going to remember what they wore that's important to people unfortunately and it makes me kind of sick to think like one of these these members that we know nothing about it's this like weird cabal behind closed doors is going to have a stake in who wins the best director race over almost someone like Barry Jenkins or Jane Campion or Paul Thomas Anderson. Like those are people who vote for best director too, Mm -hmm. but these people do it first. And who would you rather vote for who gets the Oscar? And like, yes, they do vote for who gets the Oscar. I'm not saying that, but the narrative starts there at the Globes in a real way. And yeah, it's, it's just crazy. And I think publicists, with it being back on TV and them knowing that it works as a bellwether for the Oscars, they're going to be there and they're going to make sure that people are there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll also recommend that people read um, Zach Barron's GQ profile of Brendan Fraser. He interviewed him and it was in that interview that, that Fraser shared that he would not attend the Golden Globes this year if he was nominated. And, you know, that is a decision that I certainly respect. Like, this organization has not apologized for what he went through when he, you know, when he said that he was assaulted by a former HFPA president. 
And that sort of, I mean, that derailed his career. And so, of course, I don't blame him for not going. But Mm -hmm. the fact that they haven't said anything about this, I'm curious, I think, how it will shake out. What will happen if he wins? You know, will that encourage them to say something? Probably not. (laughs) I'm just, I'm sort of cynical about this, honestly. But I do wonder if other people will say, will join him in boycotting or Mm -hmm. not going. I think it would have been, you know, if The Whale was nominated, I could have seen people from that movie also boycotting alongside of him. But A24, for instance, they're not going to boycott. They have everything everywhere all at once. But I do think, like, if another big person decided to, like, if James Cameron said, I'm not going to the Golden Globes, maybe other people would follow suit. Yeah, and I haven't heard anything else like that happening so far either like top gun was nominated but tom cruise wasn't like is tom cruise gonna show up probably not. i doubt it yeah i bet he skips it yeah (laughs) but these people aren't commenting i mean there's a reason that they're not but other people following suit have to actively say so and i feel like that's less likely so our winners in terms of nominations we have the banshees of an in the lead with eight nominations, Everything Everywhere All at Once with six, and then Babylon and the Fablemans with five. So those are four big movies, Babylon being the one. The embargo still hasn't lifted. It hasn't been released wide yet. We've kind of just heard whispers online and with people who have seen it, critics, journalists. So that showing up there, I think, is big news. But are we surprised that the industry probably likes this movie i'm not yeah you know the thing with babylon that's interesting to me when i look at this is like okay the five nominations were for justin Hurwitz for score i love that score i'll say that first but it's showing up in actor actress supporting actor picture musical comedy like i sort of expected that actually with the category split and just with the reputation that this organization has for wanting stars at their show brad pitt will probably go to the golden globes margot robbie will definitely go to the golden globes and the bigger news to me is that damien chazelle did not appear in director if they really like this movie he would have gotten a screenplay nomination or a director nomination, and he didn't. Like, this is a case, I think, of them seeing the movie at the perfect time, and it's sort of aligning with the type of film that they tend to go for and the types of performances that they go for. So I'm trying not to read into Babylon too much here, but it is definitely a significant boost after the week that it had, you know, not appearing on AFI or NBR in their top 10 lists but yeah i'm not not that surprised about babylon the fablemans it picked up its big nominations like director and screenplay and drama which was more competitive than comedy musical for sure and of course score for john williams the weirdest thing to me was just one acting nomination though so just michelle williams paul dano didn't get in judd hirsch didn't get in gabriel labelle didn't get in And I feel like the Golden Globes of the past totally would have nominated Seth Rogen. That just feels like something they would do. (laughs) So I think for Banshees to get those extra nominations is interesting. Like Mm. maybe Banshees, I think in my head, like Banshees is ahead of the Fablemans. Maybe not the front runner slot for picture, 
you know, like the Fablemans can still come back, but it definitely has more passion behind it at this stage in the race. So do you think Oscar wise Banshees will get more nominations than Fablemans? That's really tough. I think (laughs) (laughs) I actually think it will do similarly. Rapid fire. Yes or no. (laughs) Rapid fire. Yes. Okay. But it's, oh. I'll go with Fablemans, mm. but yeah, it, it is close. <laughs> I'm going to switch to Fablemans because Fablemans, we have some additional categories that I think will benefit that movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe not Banshees, yeah. costume design, editing, that kind of thing. It really is a path that I didn't totally expect where Fablemans is going heavy technical instead of above the line and Banshees is kind of both, but it's definitely more above the line than I expected. Yeah. But what I'll say about that is if actors like Banshees, that's a good sign for it to be high on a ballot. Yeah, and I think it has a better chance at showing up at SAG for Ensemble, too, even if it didn't already. I completely agree. I mean, we've barely talked about everything everywhere all at once, which is crazy. Um, But this movie getting six nominations, yes, it's in the musical comedy category, but like them nominating the Daniels for... Director Ian Screenplay feels significant. Mm-hmm. This movie having Michelle Yeoh, who I do actually think at this point is Kate Blanchett's strongest threat. It's sort of defying the odds at every step of the way, right? It's meeting its challenges and surpassing them at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah, we have Kate and Michelle already as our globe winners. <laughs> do we, though? Let's think about this a little more. Can anyone okay. else win? For actress. In musical or comedy? Do you, is that that what you think? Do you think Margot Robbie? No, I I think Michelle Yeoh will win. But I do love this category because we also have Emma Thompson for Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, and Leslie Manville for Mrs. Mm -hmm. Harris Goes to Paris. Very exciting. I love those three. I do love the Emma appearance. We talked about it so long ago on our episode that like we hope she shows up and there were searchlight articles that came out saying like yes it is eligible which like why should it not be but i'm very happy with her here in drama we do have like the expected nominees of Kate Blanchett, Viola Davis and Michelle Williams that we are predicting for the Oscars but Olivia Coleman is kind of a shock to show up for Empire of Light and then Anna de Armas for sure for Blonde That was a jump scare. A jump scare is the best way to put it. Totally agree with you about those three, about Kate, Michelle, and Viola being like in our Oscar five. The craziest thing to me was that Danielle Deadweiler missed for Mm -hmm. Till. I feel like we had this conversation with Indie Spirits, and then it didn't feel as important. But when I think about the Golden Globes, and when I think about how they recognize new talent... And they like recognizing new talent. They like, you know, being the first to do something. They gave it to Andrew Day for the United States versus Billie Holiday. Like, I thought this could be the place where Danielle could maybe win. But she's not there. And it's disheartening, I think, to see her miss and Anna de Armas get in for Blonde. Because that's just such a performance that they would go for. And that they would, you know, they would want her to be there Mm -hmm. at their show so it just yeah it makes me sad to get nominated for an oscar when you're not as well known and you're going up against these big heavyweights like 
you need things like this. You need little steps along the way to cement your place in the race. And this was a big, big miss for her. And a problematic miss, I think, for the HFPA, if you're looking at, you know, them rethinking their ethics and the entire scandal that happened a year ago, and you're going to nominate Ana de Armas for this awful movie, one that doesn't present women in a positive light, and you're not going to nominate Till or Daniel Deadweiler. There's no positive direction. I mean, yes, we have Angela Bassett being the first actor nominated from a Marvel movie. I'm glad it's her. If it had to be anyone, (laughs) I'm glad that it's her (laughs) for a Marvel movie. I do love that she showed up and supporting. But yeah, it is kind of a rough edge to these nominations. And what you said is so true. It's like if this organization is trying to get better and they say they're trying to be more inclusive and... They're under a microscope this year, and they decide to shut out movies like, I mean, Viola Davis got nominated, but The Woman King missing from drama, Women Talking missing from drama, Danielle Deadweiler missing. Like, It seems like they went a very safe, conservative route because they didn't want controversy necessarily. Like, They, they wanted to avoid the Sia music debacle. Well... <laughs> And they did, right? Like, they Slightly. by picking just straightforward, down-the-middle films mm-hmm. for most of these. Yeah. But on the flip side, like, they totally ignored great contenders. And this group, like, they tend to also be a group that nominates more women in Best Director. And that category is all men this year. Like, last year, if you remember, they gave Maggie Gyllenhaal a nomination for The Lost Daughter. And this year, they're sort of playing the hits like it's like James Cameron Steven Spielberg but then um, they sort of just also went with their favorite movies which were everything everywhere all at once the Banshees of Inisherin and Elvis I don't think that five will carry over to the Oscars Mm -hmm. at all I think we might get three but yeah that was sad because I think I expected them to I don't know to do something different but that's a mistake that I made by expecting that Yeah, the Boz appearance was interesting. It really shows that, again, they love Elvis. Some other appearances that I did like, we talked about Carrie Mulligan already in supporting for She Said. I'm glad that there's something for She Said on this list. And another was Jeremy Pope showing up for the inspection. Mm -hmm. I mean, Hugh Jackman also showed up, like I mentioned earlier, but I love the Jeremy Pope A24 Indie nomination here Mm -hmm. from the inspection yeah great performance totally deserves to be there i mean your man adam driver showed up for white noise too in musical or comedy i was very excited the entire actor musical comedy category is for me really it you know having (laughs) colin farrell there diego calva it's a good looking group daniel craig Mm -hmm. ray fines i'm gonna pretend it's like english patient Ray Fiennes, but that's a it's a quality group of men. I do like the Glass Onion nomination, too. It didn't show up much, but I'm glad that of all the people, I mean, again, another snub, we can talk about Janelle Monet because she won NBR for Supporting Actress. I think she is incredible, should be showing up in nominations, but we had Glass Onion in picture and for Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talking about supporting actress for a second, 
this is where I remember <laughs> as I was watching the nominations come through on NBC, this category was when I realized that women talking was in trouble because we had Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything Everywhere All at Once, Angela Bassett for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Carrie Condon for The Banshees of Inisherin, Carrie Mulligan for She Said, and Dolly DeLeon for Triangle of Sadness. And no one from women talking. That's a category where we expected not just maybe, maybe not just one nomination, but maybe two. What do you think of that movie and just where it is right now in the awards conversation, I guess? I really expected it to show up in places that it's just not. Yeah, Mm -hmm. here especially we have Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley who both should be nominated among others, but those I think are the lead in terms of thinking about the actresses and the cast with the best potential to make Mm -hmm. it the furthest in award season. Zero, nothing, just so shocking. Um, I think it still could play well with the industry and make it in, but I think we have to cut back even if they get in, but I think maybe in the end they only have one nomination in supporting and then maybe we have two from everything everywhere i think that is a trend maybe oh like if they really love everything everywhere they would nominate double down and stephanie and jamie lee but i don't know who you choose from women talking yeah i mean that is an interesting thing because a lot of people can't really seem to decide who their favorite is from the movie Mm -hmm. which could hurt it too that's the problem exactly and this is very different than last year for instance with the power of the dog where cody was appearing all along and then jesse plemons came in at the end right like Mm -hmm. if women talking was really strong claire foy would have shown up here she has a golden globe for the crown she was nominated for first man she would have shown up here and then jesse buckley would have gotten in at Oscar or BAFTA or something like that. And, you know, like they can still get nominated. That can still happen. But I do think this is a serious sign of weakness for the film. I mean, this is a small group, yes. But the fact that they didn't like it, unfortunately, means that it's just not going to have the same effect, like, in the awards race. Sarah Polly was nominated for a screenplay, but it's hard because I still think she's the leader of Adapted, but original so strong i have a hard time seeing her winning that category up against like spielberg and kushner and todd field and the daniels and martin mcdonough like it's hard for me to see her having an opportunity at this ceremony to make a speech or to be out in front of everyone and that that's really hard i didn't expect that at all i think part of it is united artists I mean, I'm just not really sure how they are with campaigning. Last year, they had Licorice Pizza, but and that did well with nominations throughout the season and everything and had some screenplay wins. But that was Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, he's an established auteur that people will vote for for anything sometimes. So, yeah, I don't know. I worry about that. And they have Till, too. And for Till and mm. Women Talking to not be here... That sort of makes me think it's a studio campaign problem. They also have Bones and All, which I just want to note. I saw something flash on Twitter 
And uh-huh. interestingly, they were promoting it for sound and score. Out of all Ooh. of its elements, I was like, hmm, okay. So we're kind of veering mm. away from cinematography or acting and going straight for the technicals. Interesting. So yeah, they kind of have an eclectic group of movies, United Artists. And I think with women talking, I mean, it may just end up showing up in nominations. It feels like deflating to say that, but it's tough. But I do think it being one of the five in screenplay is at least strong for it there because there is no Mm -hmm. split category. So I think there is hope. Yeah. And it also got into score. I love that score. Okay, so I think just to close out our Golden Globes conversation here, predictions for which film you think is going to win comedy musical and drama. I think comedy musical is a lot easier. Really? I'm going with everything, everywhere, all at once. You want to say Banshees? I think I'm going to say Banshees. Okay. I don't know, though. I mean, that's like the passion vote, but my my head says go with the movie that has the most nominations. So I'm going to go with Banshees. I mean, if Banshees beats everything everywhere, I don't know. It it just could rev the engine behind everything everywhere even more. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Um, that would make things really interesting for the Oscars, though. Um, yeah. You go first with drama. This is harder for me. Good. I'm going to say Elvis. <laughs> wow. That was not one of the three I had in mind. <laughs> Did you think I was going to say Tar? (laughs) No, I thought maybe you would have said Top Gun Maverick. Well, okay, so going through our drama nominees here, just to refresh people, our five movies, we have Avatar The Way of Water, Elvis, The Fablemans, Top Gun Maverick, and Tar. Obviously, if I had to vote for a movie, I would pick Tar. Top Gun Maverick feels, I don't know, I think... What I'm gathering here, like where my Elvis vote is coming from, is that they clearly love that movie. It weirdly has international appeal. Elvis kind of reminds me of Bohemian Rhapsody Mm -hmm. and its awards trajectory. If you remember, Bohemian Rhapsody won here. Like it won drama over A Star is Born and these other films. So... I don't know. And it got the Baz Luhrmann nomination. Yeah. I think Austin Butler is going to win drama actor. Mm-hmm. I think that so too. So it just sort of is aligning for me that Elvis would win, which is so crazy because a couple weeks ago, if you asked me, I would have been like, oh, the Fablemans. Easy. Mm-hmm. If we look at our best director nominees here, two were from Comedy Musical, but the three that overlap are James Cameron... Boz Lerman and Steven Spielberg. No mm-hmm. Todd Field. And I like hesitantly have Tar in like a top two or three. I mean, that would be amazing. Tar sort of aligns with last year when it when Power of the Dog won. Like right. sometimes they will go for like the artistic critic movie mm-hmm. here. They sometimes they have good taste. But like Elvis, I don't know what it what it is about it. It's just a hunch right now. <laughs> that it kind of Everything is split, and maybe it could win. I don't really see Avatar winning, even though James Cameron is nominated. Tar, I'm kind of thinking of the other critics groups that maybe that can carry over. I still want to say the Fablemans. I think that's the smart choice. 
It's a safe choice. I don't know about the smart choice. <laughs> it's a sensible choice. We'll say that. <laughs> For right now. I mean, yeah. we have just under a month until the actual Globes. So I think things can change a lot before then. We'll be getting quite a few more nominee reveals in guilds and other critics groups and wins, obviously, too. But I'll go with the Fablemans for now with Tar in my second spot. Wow. Mm. Okay. Honestly, if Tar won, I would freak out. (laughs) That movie's too good for a Golden Globe, though. (laughs) Okay. So that was our little awards chat about critics' prizes and... The Golden Globes. Next week, we will be joined by one of our favorite guests, Bennett Prosser, to break down the Oscar shortlist. We did this episode last year right after the shortlist came out, and it was really fun to go through all of these categories, talk about the rules, what everything means. Yeah, we'll have these nine categories from the shortlist. And, you know, this is our first glimpse into the Oscars. There was a little reveal in visual effects of the contenders, the eligible contenders, the shortlisted nominees will be chosen from. There were like 19 or 20 of them. So I'm excited for Bennett to come back. He always has a lot of insight and fun with the shortlists. And yeah, talking about some of our bigger predictions, maybe with how he feels about the Globes and critics and all of these things happening. And yeah, I remember last year, seeing so many technical heavy movies and thinking about Mm -hmm. where or if they may show up above the line too and how some of those differences can come up early in the conversation but then totally change once real nominations are released thank you all so much for listening if you like our show please rate review and subscribe you can follow us on twitter and instagram at oscar wild pod and if you really like our show, you can find us on patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde, where we have fun bonus content. This month, we'll be doing an episode on The Holiday, the Nancy Myers deranged delight. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye.